welcome to The Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the Governor's Office and State Politics Reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me at our Arizona Capitol Bureau this week are Dustin Gardner, State Legislative Reporter, Jessica Baim, Phoenix City Hall Reporter, Ron Hansen, I cover the Congressional Delegation, I'm Ricardo Cano, I cover education for the paper. This week on The Gaggle, City Hall politics are heating up. Congressman Paul Gosar has suggested the violent white supremacist rally in Charlottesville was planned by an Obama sympathizer. A lot of schools are upset with the letter grades that they've been issued by the Department of Education and the Board of Education. But first, we start with the state's water supply. Dustin, you had a big headline this week on uh, groundwater supply in Pinell County. Sounds like big home development project in Casa Grande may have been waylaid because there might not be enough water. What's going on there? Yeah, this is a pretty unprecedented situation. The first phase of what's supposed to be almost a 13,000 home development, um, the Department of Water Resources has told the developer that based on their modeling, there might not be enough groundwater available to supply that development for the 100-year period required under state law. Um, And that's not the only project facing this situation. There's at least 15 developments in Pinal County. They're in this sort of state of limbo because according to the state, their modeling shows there's not enough available groundwater. So they purchased these lots with the intention of building massive amounts of homes, it sounds like. What happens to the land, do you know, if, if they can't build? You know, I think they're hopeful that the state is going to make changes to its modeling to allow these developments to go forward, but there's just a lot up in the air right now. I think a lot of folks are scared and nervous about how this is going to shake out, and it's definitely not good for economic development in that part of the state. And economic development has been a big point uh, that the governor's office has tried to keep at the forefront as they have led a broader discussion about the future of the state's water supply These are ongoing conversations. They've been happening for several months now with stakeholders. Can you take us behind the scenes to give us a sense of what the governor is hoping for and what the points of contention are? Yeah, these are really broad, sweeping talks that the governor's office initiated in the spring with a group of, you know, it's roughly 30 to 40 stakeholders in each meeting. And they're talking about, you know, just in the most basic sense, what is the future of the state's water policies? Um, There's been a lot of points of contention. Um, What we were just talking about groundwater in Pinal County, that's a big concern. Another concern is, you know, the resiliency of the, the Colorado River and, and levels of Lake Mead and what the state is doing um, to unify stakeholders in Arizona on that point. But the most contentious area has been a dispute between the Department of Water Resources and uh, the Central Arizona Project, the entity that manages um, Colorado River water coming to the central part of the state through canals. Um, and that's really been heating up behind the scenes. The governor's office has concerns that CAP um, and their board, the CAWCD, have asserted too broad of a role and have been speaking for the state and negotiating deals with other stakeholders. Um, So I think we'll continue to see a lot of tension between those players. And the governor, at least it it sounds from our phone calls and our discussions, it doesn't sound as though he's earning himself himself, uh, many friends on this issue. He he seems to be drawing some enemies, especially maybe rural lawmakers or agricultural interests, home builders perhaps. What's their response to that criticism? You know, the governor's office 
their response has generally been that this is water policy in Arizona. It's always been tough. It will be tough. And we just they feel like, you know, they've just got to get pushed through that to get some meaningful changes. But, yeah, there are a lot of stakeholders that in addition to the rural lawmakers, um, agricultural interests, um, the CAP board is very upset with the governor's office. But yet on the other side, you know, have a lot of folks who are on the city side of this, the municipal side of this, who feel like the governor is finally taking an assertive lead that has been needed on water policy. The state says that, I guess looping back to Pinell County, that no one should panic. Uh, water uh, shortages uh, are, are not imminent, but I mean, water is clearly a big deal. Why shouldn't we panic? Yeah, I mean, so the state is saying they're not worried because the modeling can be tweaked and adjusted. And basically, they're they're saying that the modeling that shows there's not enough groundwater for some of these projects is overly conservative. And they also have concerns that there is a lot of speculative development um, from past years that is still on the books and is shown to be taking up this water. They think a lot of that isn't going to happen. So that frees up some room. Um, but, you know, on the other side, there are a lot of water policy experts who feel like this is not just some some little thing. This is a big deal, and it's an indicator of the troubles that certain areas of the state, like Pinal County, will face if they continue to rely on groundwater um, and don't shift to more, no more renewable sources of water. see it the same way with Antifa, you know, to instigate the violence and to feign, I've got a right, and you don't have a right. In fairness, Antifa's in the news because of a, a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville. Well, isn't that interesting? That Maybe that was created by the left. You know, Why do because, you say that? Because let's look at the person that actually started the, the rally. It's come to our attention that this is a person from Occupy Wall Street that was an Obama sympathizer. So wait a minute. Be careful on what you, where you start taking these people to. And look at the background. George Soros is one of those people that actually helps you know back these individuals. Who is he? I think he's from Hungary. I think he was Jewish. And I think he turned in his own people to the Nazis. We better be careful of where we go with those. Do you think George Soros funded the neo-Nazis who marched in Charlottesville? Wouldn't it be interesting to find out? That was Congressman Gosar. Uh, he made those comments to Vice News, and it aired on HBO. He was speaking about the Charlottesville rally. He invoked some pretty far-right conspiracies. He basically said that the white supremacist rally was planned by an Obama sympathizer, and he had some things to say about liberal activist George Soros. Congressman Gosar represents uh, CD4, some Phoenix suburbs, and the western kind of rural portion of the state. Ron, what did he say, and why did it cause so much drama? Essentially, the congressman uh, intimated that an Obama supporter had been behind the marches in Charlottesville involving Ku Klux Klan, uh, alt-right, neo-Nazi sorts, and... They were the driving uh, force behind that rally, um, which really is kind of puzzling on many fronts. And this is something that has been sort of floated in the uh, uh, more conservative corners of the Internet. Uh, people like Alex Jones have, have talked about this sort of thing. There was one of the people who invo was involved in the rally who did say he voted for Barack Obama at one point and... Um, based on that thin thread sort of 
uh, tries to pin this event on, you know, I guess Democrats or Barack Obama or some such thing. It's something that it really is pretty obviously a reach um, and is just sort of reflective, I think, of a congressman who's open to uh, some fairly thinly sourced news and information. The Soros comments involve, uh, you know, every uh, Republican's favorite boogeyman for Democratic fundraising uh, with George Soros. And, you know, Soros was a child at the time that World War II was going on. And here he is uh, essentially saying that Soros was involved in turning over Jews to the Nazis, which is also sort of uh, a really incredible claim. Um that is also thinly sourced, if sourced at all. Um, but it, it, again, it seems to be reflective of um, uh, some of the views that are in some of the more uh, uh, extreme elements of the far right. Has he said anything publicly since this interview aired about what he's basing his comments on? Or No, he hasn't really detailed it that, that I've seen uh, in terms of, um, you know, his sourcing on this. Again, some of this has been put on sites like Alex Jones's and such. Uh, so it's known that this kind of thinking has been out there uh, in terms of his own deliberative process, why he puts stock in it or not. You know, he hasn't really addressed that. Uh, and he kind of, you know, presented these things as questions, as possibilities, more than just uh, hard, settled uh, notions that he definitely believes in. So he's left himself some wiggle room, I suppose, on it. But again, to even float that as a possibility seems uh, to be reflective of uh, a willingness to embrace conspiracy where uh, most others would not. Do you think this is part of a maybe a, a more well thought out plan to out Trump Trump and to play to to the right corners of his base? That may well be it, actually. Um, He tweeted uh, something to that effect uh, um, a few weeks ago that uh, pointing to uh, some polling, I think, that had been done showing that uh, Republicans faced reprisals from voters next year if they don't support the president and his agenda. And clearly the, the implication is that you need to be with Donald Trump. And in a sense, what this what Dr. Gosar is doing is really sort of uh, trying to show, uh, you know, out Trump, Trump, as you put it, I think is is about right. It really is embracing some of the the more far right ideas and conspiracies from some of his favorite sources. And so while others may look at it and say this is uh, too nutty for me to put stock in, those kinds of comments probably wouldn't play as well in a um, more urban district, say, Congressional District 9 in, in North Central Phoenix. And the news coming out of uh, Congressional District 9 has caused for a pretty busy news cycle for you. Jessica, Mayor Stanton announced he is running uh, for Congress. This was a long-anticipated announcement. Uh, and then a, a couple of dominoes fell. What's happening at City Hall? Who Who's in the lineup for mayor? And uh, when can we expect Stanton to step down? Those are a lot of good questions. Uh, so almost immediately after Stanton's announcement, Councilman Daniel Valenzuela announced that he is going to seek that top spot in the city of Phoenix. A few days later, Councilwoman Kate Gallego did the same thing. So at this point, 
We are going to eventually have a mayor who is resigning, at least two council members who will resign. And I would not be surprised if some other individuals don't decide to get involved in this race. As for when we can expect a resignation from Stanton, he's been pretty quiet on that at this point. Uh, That's something that I think a lot of people, probably most notably uh, Councilwoman Gallego and Councilman Valenzuela, who at this point don't even know how long their election cycle will be because the city can't call for an election until Stanton resigns and we don't have an indication as to when that will be. So, Jessica, you've got the mayor leaving. You have two council members resigning to run for mayor at some point. Um, And next spring, the city faces what's likely to be another big budget deficit, according to their projections. How does all this um, dominoes uh, falling, how does that affect this budget coming up? That's also a good question. I think that it is more than likely that all three of the people we just mentioned will be out of the room by the time that those budget discussions occur, um, at least the final vote, I should say. I think it is entirely possible that there will be a new makeup of ideals on council by the time those discussions take place. There could be some more conservative voices filling the seats left open by uh, Councilman Valenzuela and Councilwoman Gallego. And so who knows what decisions that they will make to uh, further the direction of the city. An interesting thing I would watch with that, too, is to see um, when these appointments are being made, if there's any deal making with the budget or is anyone agreeing to any specific provisions for the labor unions or other interest groups that have a big stake in that. And Valenzuela does have the fire union behind him. Traditionally, they've been a very powerful force on the ground uh, with these city hall races. Can Kate Gallego, Councilwoman Gallego, overcome that ground game uh, from the union side? It sounds like she is bringing the support of her ex-husband, Congressman Ruben Gallego, who was known for his ground game. How might that shape out? Yeah, that has been confirmed that he will be assisting in some capacity in her campaign. I think both of them have shown that they're strong fundraisers and campaigners. I'm not saying it will be an easy task to go up against the fire union. It never is. But I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that this will be a tight race. And who uh, might replace Stanton, at least in the interim, in terms of like a a caretaker role? Who's going to lead the city while all this political drama plays out? Do you have a sense of that? We won't know until uh, Stanton's resignation and the vote finally takes place. But... Everyone's saying that Councilwoman Thelda Williams pretty much has it locked up. And interesting fun fact about Councilwoman Williams, she has actually served as an interim mayor twice before. So she will be, I believe, the only three-time mayor at three different times in Phoenix history. So kind of a fun, a fun little trend she has going. Ricardo, the Department of Education and the State Board of Education have issued grades to schools based on their performance. These grades are 
fitting in line with the traditional A, B, C, D, F system. They were highly anticipated, but they did unleash a torrent of criticism from some of the very schools that have been propped up as some of the best schools in Arizona. Some of these schools did not get the grades that they were expecting. What What is the point of these grades, and what's the basic criticism of them? So um, a lot of advocates and and educators over the past few months have been asking that very same question. So to give some context, you know, the state is, Arizona is required by state law to uh, issue school letter grades to uh, district and charter public schools um, on an A through F scale. Uh, The State Board of Education has spent more than a year trying to figure out how to create uh, this new system that uh, was going to remedy some of the the criticisms of the old system. So a lot of people uh, criticized the old system because they felt, you know, it it, it essentially just um, graded schools on how many economically disadvantaged students they had. There was a high correlation with um, high student poverty and, and low letter grades. Um, with this iteration of the grade, um, you know, there's criticisms from both schools that are used to getting uh, really high grades, like A's, and and schools that have felt marginalized by um, the grading system all along because they do serve those economically disadvantaged students. And both of them are basically saying that, um, you know, this new system, the way it's set up, uh, is not fairly grading either of them. From reading your story, it sounds like a lot of these schools, um, are hundreds of them really, are going to be appealing or are appealing their grades, similar to you know what maybe I tried to do in college. If I didn't like a, a test score, I would go talk to my professor and try to get it, you know, make a case to get it changed. Um, is that something that these schools can do? I mean, what's the threshold or the standard that the state will use when it considers whether or not to to change these grades? So um, the state was supposed to have this wrapped up this week. Um, these grades were intended to be finalized. Uh, but uh, Friday afternoon, when the State Department of Education released, you know, the first wave of data, um, you know, detailing how schools performed, um, you know, the State Board of Education sent a memo to school superintendents. It was very ambiguously worded, uh, just hinted that the process isn't over, that they are still going to be looking at uh, this grading system and potentially make changes depending on what public input they get in the next month. Um, so uh, there's about 270 letter grades that are, are still under review, quote unquote, and um, majority of those, according to Tim Carter, the president of the State Board of Education, um, are schools that have appealed their grades essentially because they're questioning the integrity of the data being used. This is a new system. This is a new rubric. So the state is taking a look at, at some of those issues. After Easy Central sent out links to your story, hit my inbox, and of course the first thing I did as a parent was check how my school rated. I know a lot of other parents did that too. Um, it clearly has, these these ratings have implications on the ground for, for parents who um, oftentimes choose their neighborhoods based on how the schools perform, um, but it could have economic issues too for the state, right, Ron? Yeah, I mean, I think Dustin and Ricardo both are talking about issues this week that have a lot of 
relevance to Arizona moving forward. You know, the last thing Arizona wants is headlines about water shortages. Uh, we're already a desert. We're battling the image of uh, a state that's too hot and too dry. Uh, and with the education component, you also have concerns about the adequacy of Arizona's public schools. There's already a long history of, of battling um, a reputation as a state that pinches pennies on education and, and trying to produce workers for the next generation of jobs. And you, you really don't want to fall short in these areas. These are things that are deal killers and bringing in outside businesses. And, and it's really sort of counter to the narrative that the governor's office has really been trying to float for, you know, uh, two years now. Final segment, what are you watching for this week? Dustin? I'm looking at the Secretary of State's office and how Michelle Reagan handles this request from President Trump's Voter Integrity Commission. And Ricardo? I'm just going to look at how this whole uh, letter grade system is going to hash out. Uh, uh, is the state going to make more changes to the system for this school year, or is it going to close the book and focus on the changes that most people say need to be made for following years? Ron? Well, the president today uh, remarked about the future of NAFTA being in doubt. That's something that has great relevance to Arizona. Um, So I want to see how that unfolds in the coming days. And Jessica? I'll keep watching to see if we have a date for Stanton's resignation. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. At Dustin Gardner. At Ricardo underscore Cano one. At JBame underscore news. And you can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Thanks to the politics team. Our production team is Jojo Huckaba, Haley Sanchez, and Kayla White. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week. 